Bom bom bits, a bowl full of chips. Bom bom bits, with Chappy and Pip. Bom bom bits, two young brothers. Bom bom bits, talking college football. Bom bom bits, and life and humor. And some funny ass clips. So relax and unwind with a bowl full of chips. Four. Week four, that is. Come on in and get your weekly diet of chips, a bowl full of chips. College football's increasingly popular national podcast built to grow and last. Here at BFC, we bring football closer because college football is our passion and delivering the deepest and most insightful analysis to you is our mission. And we do it with pride. Week three is come and gone, and we'll talk about all the things that happened in this past uh Weekend of college football, which unfortunately, Bip, is still just three days. Um, we only get Friday and well, not even three, two days, Friday and Saturday. Right. Uh, but it's good to know that this Thursday we get football back on Thursday, Friday and Saturday. I know we're spoiled, but oh, well, damn it. We love it and we want it. So um, and we're going to talk about week four's best games and sleepers to keep an eye out for. So as always, by now you know me. I'm Chappy Go Lucky, and I'm teamed up with the notorious BIP. Bip, what's happening, Hardshell Bracco? Just eagerly awaiting that Notre Dame Georgia matchup Saturday night, and hoping for a better end than MSU's 12 men on a field goal, and Iowa State's own man slamming into their punt returner, causing that muffed punt, and not allowing Brock Purdy to get back on the field. Or maybe I would accept one of those fates if it would uh, avoid a. Good old-fashioned southern ass whipping, but uh, right. enough about me, Chappie. How are you tonight? I'm doing good, man. Um, you know, it's uh, life is certainly starting to pick up here a little bit, but uh, you think that means college football takes a back seat? Hell no, my friend. It's uh, it's at the forefront, and it's it's you know it keeps us all going here. So this is the one of the best parts of the week for me right. is, is talking this great game with you, my brother. So. Um, well, Bip and I, we're doing our thing every weekend and working into the week for you, but we, we could use from you, our listeners, is for you to rate and review our show wherever you can. And if you don't already, subscribe. Subscribe first. Um, it's easy. It benefits you. It downloads right to your device, and you can get your bowl full of chips right where you have it, right where you need to without doing a thing. Bip and I, we're on Twitter, so give us a follow. I am at champion underscore lit. And I am at BFC Bip. So keep tuned throughout the week and especially on the weekend for our thoughts on the week's events coming up. You can also visit our show's Twitter page on at Bowlful of Chips, where we post our website for a growing number of resources and information aimed at quenching your college football thirst. You can also find links to our previous podcasts and contact us at bowlfulofchips at gmail.com. So Bip, week three has come and gone. And it's sad, man, that uh, I hate to be the pessimist outlook here, but the regular season is now a quarter gone. Can you believe that? I mean, it's it's a little bit uh, sobering, to be honest. Yeah, I know. As soon as it's come, it has gone just as fast. Right. Happy. So um, let's not live in the future. Let's take every moment for what we can, like they tell us to do with our children. And college football is one of our good sure. children. So, um, so I'm going to start with what we learned. I learned that Ohio State is good. Their offense is multifaceted, and J.K. Dobbins is the nation's premier running back right now. The junior had 193 yards, two touchdowns, and Ohio State had this thing 
one in the first half, scoring 44 of their 51 points in the second and third quarters. The defense is playing pretty well, too. And you and I called it that this defense was going to be much better, mainly because of the hire of Greg Madison. So a um, little bit of a pat on the back for us. But I think uh, anybody who knows college football and knows Greg Madison knew that that was a big, big help coming the way to the Buckeyes. Indiana really didn't self-destruct. They were just shut down by this Ohio State defense. They only had 42 yards rushing, which is pretty good considering they had Stevie Scott and um, Ronnie Walker and some of those guys that have been fairly explosive in the run game to only put up 42 mm-hmm. points against this Buckeye defense doesn't mean that you did anything wrong. It means that Ohio State really just um, shut you down because Indiana only had, I think, one turnover in the game. So it wasn't that they fumbled. It wasn't that they threw picks. Um, our boy Peyton Ramsey right. actually played fairly well. He just couldn't get anything going against this Buckeye defense. Only um, 200 yeah. yards passing, and much of that came from the Hoosiers having to play from behind and behind the sticks so often. Um, I also learned that I need to pump the brakes, and a lot of us need to pump the brakes on teams like Maryland, Penn State, Iowa State, and even Florida. So the two Big Ten teams, uh, Maryland and Penn State, came in averaging around 70 points per game. They combined for just 24 with the Terps losing to an AAC team in Temple, albeit a good one, but not a team that they that should have held you like they did. Um, talking about Iowa State, they still can be a force, but they really peed down their own leg in the second half of that one, and I'm not going to use the delays and the yeah. weather as an excuse. Um, penalties killed them. The botched punt return at the end of the game, we won't go too much into that. I mean, you already mentioned it, and I know that Iowa State fans um, – are to the point of gun barrel in the <laughs> mouth uh, hearing that anymore. But uh, <laughs> right. I mean, you know, I, I was a little skeptical and we touched on it in the last podcast. And I said, if Mike Loxley comes out and he beats Temple and they start off three and zero and they score 40 points, he has my vote and they are, I'm locked into them. No pun intended, but um, they, they had it first and goal basically from the five and were shut down. Then Maryland, or uh, I'm sorry, Temple shanks a punt. So Maryland gets it back. Um, essentially inside the 15-yard line going in, and they don't do anything with that either. And Josh Jackson had a terrible game. I think his final stats were like 15 of 38. So somebody who was so highly efficient in week one and week two really looked bad against a team that was a step down from them in terms of level of competition that they're going to be expected to play in the Big Ten this year. But So that's what I learned in week right. one. Yep, and I learned that the the Big Ten continues to underwhelm. Uh, I kind of mentioned this a little bit last week, how the Big Ten West, outside of Wisconsin and Iowa, was, uh, was not looking as good as folks thought going into the year. Then week three happened. <laughs> so Illinois lost to Eastern Michigan at home. Go Penn Eagles. State won by, only seven, <laughs> won by only seven against Pitt at home uh, when they were 17-point favorites. Michigan State loses to Arizona State at home. Purdue loses to TCU by 21 at home. <laughs> Minnesota barely escapes Georgia Southern at home. And <laughs> Maryland loses to Temple on the road, which you touched upon. And Northwestern trailed most of the second quarter against UNLV. And Hunter Johnson completed under 50% uh, 50% of his passes once again. Um, so the offense is dried up for Penn State and Maryland in week three. The Big Ten West continues to have trouble with Eastern Michigan as uh, Purdue lost to them last year, uh, as we remember. Minnesota continues to look like maybe the worst undefeated team in the country, and there's lots of questions as we enter Big Ten play. Um, I also learned that USC and uh, Keaton Slovis have come back to earth, and they might be in for a rude awakening. 
Um, so BYU comes away with another upset, uh, having beaten Tennessee at Tennessee last week. This time they trumped the mighty Trojans. And while Slovis completed 70% of his passes, he threw three picks. The Trojans lost this game in the same fashion as they did many games last year, which was with the second half lead. USC, um, that was that was kind of their, their downfall last year. So I'm sure this was even more painful for Trojan fans to watch uh, as the game unfolded. And they don't get any time to catch their breath as they host Utah this week, who already beat BYU on the road 30-12 to and look as balanced as any team in the country. They then travel to Washington and Notre Dame with additional games at Colorado, which looks tougher than we thought at the beginning of the year. They're home against Oregon and in the last game of the season against rival UCLA, and then also still have road games uh, later on in the year at Arizona State and at Cal. So suddenly those two wins that they have against an 0-2 Fresno State team and an overpowered 1-2 Stanford team don't look so great. And I continue to wonder if the Trojans will be towing the 500 line all season, Jaffe. Yeah, and I'm gonna um, I'm gonna respectfully say that I think you might be overreacting um, and having a little bit of a knee jerk reaction um, to USC. I still like them as a team if they can beat Utah this week, and and we'll talk on that. That's one of our our, it's a our big games. if. Yeah, it is a big if, especially with a uh, a true freshman quarterback who threw three picks mm-hmm. against BYU. Um, Right. But, you know, again, I think if they beat the Utes at the Coliseum, I can see you and others kind of changing your tune and saying, you know what, I was wrong, and this team under Graham Harrell running the offense is pretty good. They've got a great group of receivers. Uh, their defensive front is is better than we thought. So we'll we'll kind of pump the brakes on that now. But I could see your 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 reaction to that, especially because USC, they had chances and just didn't get it done out in Provo. But um, – Right. You know, at the same time, Kalani Sataki is a coach who's really cutting his teeth against some good ranked teams. Remember, they went into sure. Madison and beat a top 10 Wisconsin team last season. They beat USC, who was a ranked team. And for all intents and purposes, they were right in there against Utah um, in Provo in week one. If you recall, the the uh, Utah defense had two pick sixes that went for scores, obviously. So that 30-12 to 12 game really looks more like a 16-12 final, um, which we're talking a, a much different story about BYU if they only lose by four sure. to a Utah team that some are saying is a legit college football playoff team, which I disagree with. I don't think that there's any team in the Pac-12 right now that I would put any money on going to the college football playoff, even if they run the table and go undefeated. Um, but, right. you know, that's that's another subject another time. Right. But if USC doesn't beat Utah this week, they're looking at two and two, then traveling to Washington and to Notre Dame for a possible two and four start. And how does that play with the psyche of a true freshman quarterback? But yeah, this will be a very interesting matchup this week. Yeah, I I think USC season and um, I hate to say it, but uh, Clay Helton's future hinges on this Friday night's game against Utah. Oh, for sure. uh, Absolutely. So, well, continuing with your Big Ten theme that you kind of started on, what surprised me this week um, is Big Ten theme for me. So first of all, Northwestern. My Wildcats committed just 40 penalties in 14 games last year, has already committed 16 in their first two games this season. Eight against Stanford, eight this week against UNLV. So a beacon of consistency and discipline the last two years. I think... I know last year they were the top team in fewest penalties committed, and I think they had that honor in 2017 as well. They now are one of the more penalized teams, so 16 in two games. That's not good under Pat Fitzgerald. 
and it's something that needs to get cleaned up soon if they want to compete for the West and defend their title. I also sure. was surprised at how MSU blew their chance, and it was because of a coaching blunder. I honestly thought the game right. would be more wide open than what it was, but that ASU defense clamped down and rendered Lewerke and the Spartans ineffective, even though they, they racked up 420-some yards of total offense. Yeah. Um, they just couldn't close. They were their own worst enemy, and Mark D'Antonio is one of the more respected coaches, in my opinion, in terms of a guy that teaches and coaches his players to do the right thing. And I'm sorry, um, coaching at the high school level, you tell your placeholder and you tell your place kicker, your job is to count up and make sure that you've got 10 guys in front of you, um, you know, counting yourself as the 11th. And for them to have right. 12 men, and I know it's been talked at, and I know that MSU fans are probably turning off our podcast right now, but um, <laughs> it's inexcusable. And it's not so much just on D'Antonio. It's on the special team staff. It's on the, uh, you know, the players. It rivals, uh, and I would say it's even worse than the Jim Harbaugh uh, gaffe against Michigan State a few years right. ago when he did not uh, call a timeout or shrink down and reduce to try and block when you knew that Michigan State was coming all out at you. Um, that's just inexcusable yeah, as a coach. Yeah, because you either know you're on the field goal unit or you're mm -hmm. not. And it's as simple as that. There's 11 guys that know I'm on the field goal right, unit. Right, right. <laughs> so, but I was even more surprised. So adding on to my surprise at MSU, Matt Coglin was one of the best kickers in the Big Ten, and he was my all-Big Ten choice as place kicker this season. He's already missed three field goals. And that one that right. he missed on the second go-round, which was only from 47 yards, well within his range, the weather was perfect, he blew it big time. Um, so yep. that's what surprised me. And also what surprised me, and this is a little bit more funny than anything, is Kirk Ferentz's quote slash call out after the Iowa State game. He said, and, and who knows what he meant, but as I read this, it, it seems like it's a little bit of um, sticking the knife in the back. He says, games, quote, games like this come down to mental toughness and physical toughness. So to me, I look at that. If I'm an Iowa State fan or if I'm an Iowa State player, I'm reading into that as, oh, so you're saying we didn't have enough mental toughness or physical toughness, um, which, yeah, the the gunner on the punt team, no, you didn't have mental toughness. You were just uh, basically, you, you blew it um, mentally right. in running into your own punt returner, especially knowing that the weather conditions were sloppy and um, the slightest misstep, you're going to go in a direction that you don't intend to go. So I was a little surprised at this from Kirk Ferentz, but I kind of like it, and it makes the, quote, rivalry even saucier. So I wonder if oh, Iowa sure. State fans and players are still going to see the big picture and realize that they have the Big 12 season ahead of them, and this is one game. And though it hurts, it's a rivalry game. On the, on the total uh, landscape of things, this means relatively nothing compared to what you have your goals ahead of you. If you can go through and you can beat Texas, you can beat Oklahoma State, you can beat um, uh, Oklahoma and go through and win the Big 12, cha 12 championship or at least even play for the Big 12 championship, then that's a huge success. And I think that that will bury this loss um, against Iowa in the long run. But right. Well, what surprised me is that Kansas State is 3-0. In, and so starting off the Chris Kleeman era, um, they upset Mississippi State. And the Wildcats have done so with solid quarterback play from Skylar Thompson, who's averaging 9.2 yards per attempt, has four touchdowns, no interceptions. They also rank 12th in the country in rushing yards per game. James Gilbert and Jordan Brown are both averaging over six yards per carry, and they both have at least 20 carries. So they've been pretty efficient. 
and they haven't had the toughest uh, of competition yet, but Manhattan has been extremely difficult for anyone not named Snyder to win at, and Kleeman is halfway to bowl eligibility already. So hats off to the Wildcats. I'm surprised at how well that they've come out so far, and um, there's someone that, that could be one of those not anyone that I think is going to make major noise within the Big 12, but I think you could see an upset or two as they roll through that Big 12 schedule this year. Yes, certainly those Purple Cats are ones that uh, are going to be a lot tougher now on your slate than what they looked going into uh, 2019 BIP. So, yeah, I think that that's definitely uh, something that surprised me as well, but it's more of a pleasant surprise. And I love it because Chris Kleiman is – he, you know, I, I loved watching that YouTube video when he got the call from the athletic director offering him the job, and he just looked like this is home to him, and he looks like somebody who mm-hmm. this is where he's going to be regardless of what his record is, whether he shoots up like Bill Snyder did and becomes another legend in college football um, or right. whether he's kind of a meddling, uh, you know, middle-level type guy. Um, I, I think that he's found a home in Manhattan, and, and good for him and good for the Wildcats and their, and their fans. Yep. So, um, what questions do you have? So, so a few questions that I have going into this week is, uh, mainly surrounds itself around what teams are going to plant themselves squarely in the early playoff picture and which ones get knocked out is there's quite a few games there where we could see a lot of the, uh, college football landscape unfold. So the winner of Michigan, Wisconsin takes the driver's seat with Ohio state for the big 10. The winner of the Notre Dame-Georgia game obviously puts the rest of the country on notice. Washington traveling to Provo to take on that tricky BYU team that we've already mentioned. Uh, If they end up losing that game, Washington's out of the playoffs with a second loss for sure. I think they're out already, honestly. um... I I, I think so, too, but I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt just in case uh, a one-loss Pac-12 team can make it in. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Texas uh, hosting an explosive Oklahoma State. Uh, Oklahoma State team might have too much uh, catch up to play if they drop this one or if it's even, you know, something to where Texas almost loses. Uh, My question, similar to Washington, if a one loss Big 12 team can make it to the playoff, Oregon travels to the farm to play a struggling Stanford team. But we saw what happened in last year's game and in the Auburn game this year when a physical team wears down Oregon throughout the game. Uh, Obviously, another loss to them would knock them out as well. Auburn travels to Texas A&M and could move into the top five with a win. Uh, but with a loss, we'll be wondering what kind of an Auburn team do we have here, especially if Oregon possibly struggles uh, at Stanford this week. And as mentioned already, uh, Utah travels to SoCal to take on USC in a game where we've seen two sides of Keaton Slovis and that group of receivers can uh, score quickly. So regardless of the defense across uh, the field from them this week, what does um, that potentially explosive passing attack do to that Utah defense uh, to try and derail them from their hopeful uh, undefeated season? Well, and here's my hot take. First of all, um, I don't think any Pac-12 team will make the, the college football playoff, even if they're undefeated, unless there are um, two lost teams that, uh, like Georgia, like if Georgia's a two-loss team, LSU's, if, if teams from the SEC and from the Big Ten beat up on each other, I don't see an undefeated team from the Pac-12 making it over a one-loss team from any other conference aside from Clemson. Um, Hmm. I also don't think that um, a one-loss Big 12 team will make it unless your name is Oklahoma. So, uh, you know, granted, if Texas is a one-loss team and they win the Big 12, yes, I think that they get in because you beat Oklahoma. 
um, who will most likely only have one loss. Potentially at twice. Yeah. yeah, potentially twice. Right. Um, but yeah, I think, uh, and, and nobody from the ACC, unless you're Clemson, makes it in with one loss. And I think Clemson still makes oh, it in no. with one loss. But um, that's going to get me to my question here, Bip. Is the ACC really this bad? Georgia Tech lost to a Furman <laughs> team that was a 27-point yeah. underdog. Um, Boston College lost to Kansas. Kansas. NC State lost yeah. to West Virginia, who is not looking they that good thumped. this year. Yeah. I mean, NC State was, you know, humming in the first two weeks, and they took it on the chin out in Morgantown. Um, mm-hmm. Florida State can't play a second half. Four teams <laughs> in the ACC that are 2-1 and one have just a 16-point differential or less which means that they're not winning by much. Now, I know that we said at the beginning of the season that this conference would be weak, but we called on Syracuse and Florida State to win nine games or more. Each of us called on Miami and Virginia Tech to lead the Coastal, and neither are looking that way right now. So, I mean, this ACC is looking a lot more down than it did at the beginning of the season. Now, good for Wake Forest, good for North Carolina to kind of emerge so far in the early part of the season, and good for Louisville, too. I mean, they're looking a lot better than I gave them credit for, and I think most people gave them credit Mm -hmm. for you as well. Um, but everything else is just, I mean, the teams that were supposed to be good are really slumping and even Boston college and, that tried to, uh, poke their head out as Hey, we can still play, you know, you farted in the wind against Kansas last <laughs> weekend. So, um, and I think teams like, like wake forest, North Carolina and Louisville, who are looking to be potentially better than what we thought going into the season are just going to muddy the waters yeah. even more in the ACC right. and have more lead to potentially more four loss or more teams in that ACC as you kind of see a lot of the teams uh, picking each other off. And then you have Clemson with what could be four more wins than the second place team out of the ACC, regardless of division. And my other question real quick, and this has to be said, we touched on it last week. Why the hell can't college place kickers make an extra point? (laughs) UL Monroe missed one last week. Virginia missed one this week. In fact, nearly two handfuls of division one place kickers have missed one extra point in three games bit. So you're looking at maybe maximum you kick 15 extra points and double digit number of players have missed at least one from 17 friggin' yards out. Air Force's place kicker has missed two. SMU as a team has missed four GD extra points in three weeks. I get it that there's a three-step process to the PAT, but you work at it every day, all offseason, every practice. It just shouldn't be the problem that it especially is in such a brief stint. WTF. I yeah, don't get it. The, right. The, the only thing I can think of is that instead of practicing kicking in practice, it's like the water boy where they just do sprints. Um, yeah. I, I mean, I don't know. What is your job as a kicker outside of <laughs> kick the right. ball, kick the ball at practice, kick the ball from seven yards or um, 12 yards away, whatever an extra point yeah. is. Kick the ball from you know this angle. Kick the ball from that yeah. angle. Um, yeah, the, the the fact that we have scholarship kickers missing extra points, or even walk on kickers yeah. for that matter, mm-hmm. you are traveling with your college, with your university to a spot. You're taking up a roster yeah. spot and a spot from maybe another scholarship player who can't make the trip with you. Kick it through the damn uprights. Yeah, right, <laughs> come on, Marty, you can do it. Um, so our, our, my champions, Chappie's champion for this week. Um, I have two real quickly. Um, first of all, for all the crap that they can get, and sometimes rightfully so my champions are the two sec institutions that I'm going to talk about. First of all, the university of Georgia for their pink out in the stands against Arkansas state in honor of 
Arkansas State head coach Blake Anderson's wife, Wendy, who tragically passed away after her battle with cancer not even two weeks ago. And credit to Coach Anderson for even being back to coach such shortly after um, you know such a loss. Prayers and well wishes for everyone involved with Wendy and the Anderson family. I couldn't even imagine losing somebody that close to me and going out and doing the hard, arduous task of coaching college football. The other is yeah, that was cool. They I saw uh, real quick. They, I saw some of the guys that had their their shirts off and yeah. bodies painted in pink in the front row. They said uh, they had some sort of message on the on their backs that mentioned Wendy. Yeah. So really cool move, really classy move by the uh, the the fans at large in Georgia. Right, and even Blake Anderson said they didn't they don't know me. Um, they they probably didn't right. even know I coached, but the fact that they they found out about it and they went to these lengths, he said, you know, it's it's really I'm speechless. And so yeah, you know, right. kudos to those Georgia fans because I know SEC fans really get a bad rap, but this shows the human side and that yeah. you know, being a fan is separate from who you are as a human being. And so this is good. The other thing, and I actually right. like this one a little bit more. Um, the University of Tennessee for rising up to show the young man who was so passionate about his volunteers that he got imaginative and created his own UT shirt that some weak-minded, insecure, pathetic bullies felt was necessary to criticize. Well, now he's created a fad that has a lot of support throughout the state, the country. Um, even College Game Day took part in this. And everybody on the on the set there put on that shirt. So this kid probably didn't have the money um, didn't have a UT shirt, but he wanted to show his support. So he basically drew it on a piece of paper and uh, taped it or uh, fastened it to his shirt. And some bullies felt that they needed to pick on him about that. And not only did the community come up, but the University of Tennessee has offered him a four-year scholarship to attend there. And as a father and a teacher who has zero, zero tolerance for bullying, you guys at the University of Tennessee are my champions. And And I say, way to go, dude. Good for you for sticking up for your team, and you came out on top, and those bullies lost in this one. Yeah, and what's really cool is those shirts have flown off the shelves oh, yeah. um, at, around Tennessee, and they're donating all the proceeds to anti-bullying right. uh, charities and programs and whatnot. So really classy move all around for Tennessee. Yep. Um, mine's not as heartwarming as yours. I actually went with a football one chappy here, but uh, <laughs> uh, my – my uh, my VIP for this week is going to be Kyle Trask from Florida. Okay. So Felipe Franks goes out with a gruesome ankle yeah. injury. And up until then, his stats were good, but the Gator offense just wasn't very effective. They trailed 21-10. Florida then inserts Kyle Trask, who was a very low-ranked quarterback coming out of high school and someone that didn't have a whole lot of fanfare. The Gators proceeded to score 19 unanswered points to beat Kentucky, and the team really rallied around Trask as he was efficient, going 9 of 13 yeah. with 126 yards, one touchdown on the ground. I don't think the Gators are in a better situation with Trask at quarterback necessarily, but in a tough spot, taking over for Franks, down 11 in a hostile environment, uh, Trask delivered for sure, so he gets my bip vip for the Yeah, week, and Jeffy. I think that's a really good pick, and I just learned today, he hasn't started a game since his freshman year in high school, which... Um, it's kind of baffling. Now, I don't know the whole story, whether he got injured and, um, you know, got his scholarship based on previous reputation or whatnot, or he went to camps and whatnot. And honestly, starts in high school and stats in high school don't matter. If you go to a camp and you wow a coach, I mean, it's what you see and what yeah. a guy can produce. It, it doesn't matter what you see on huddle or what sort of, you mm -hmm. know, fudged stats that high school coaches will send you in an email, you know? So Kyle Trask yeah. proved his worth in Lexington on Saturday night. So yeah, that's a great pick that. All right. So let's get to week four preview in our picks. So we're going to start off with that USC team that you were talking about earlier. They kick off um, nine o'clock Eastern time 
6 o'clock Pacific time out on ESPN, or I'm sorry, not on ESPN, um, the Fox Network, I believe, going against the Utah Utes, who are ranked 10th in the country. Now, USC was 24th. They dropped out of the rankings. Tyler Huntley, their quarterback for, for Utah, and Zach Moss have that offense working smoothly. Uh, their top three ball carriers for Utah are averaging 4.6 yards per carry or better. So the key for USC going against that Utah offense, which has been very efficient, is to slow down the outside perimeter game and force Tyler Huntley out of the pocket with their pass rush. Um, you know, Christian Rector and Drake Jackson, especially Drake Jackson, he's really had a, a very good early part of the season. He's playing yeah. at a high level. Three sacks and three passes defended as a defensive end so far. That's higher than some uh, defensive back stats that they've got. Utah has not mm-hmm. given up a sack yet, nor has Huntley thrown an interception. Pretty good. But that could be a detriment if they can, if USC can get to Huntley a couple of times and if they can force an interception, that could really dent the psyche of both the offensive line and the, uh, Huntley, the quarterback, and maybe even the entire offense and play into USC's favor. Now, Utah has two big play guys, wide receiver Brian Thompson, who's averaging 42 yards um, per reception on four catches and two touchdowns. Now, I know it's, not a, it's a small sample size, but the fact is, He's getting behind coverage, and he's making the big play and cashing in for the Utes. The other one is tight end Brant Keithy, who's averaging 20 yards per catch on seven receptions. So the Trojans need to lock these two up. But outside of those two, there's not a lot of huge game-changing playmakers that we've seen from that Utah offense yet outside of Moss and Huntley. Now, USC, you talked about Keaton Slovis. He was tested a little bit better this last week against BYU. Still completed 71% of his passes, but the big uh, knock against him was the 2-3 to touchdown-to-interception ratio. I think we're finding out, though, that BYU is a better team than we thought that they were at the beginning of the year. They played Utah really close, um, and um, you know then they came out and they knocked off USC, obviously. So the key for the Trojans would be the offensive line. Yes, they're going to need to give Slovis some time, but also tie up that front for Utah just enough to allow for uh, Malapai and Carr and Marquis step to alternate runs and try to chunk away that Utah defense. And by the way, each of those three guys that I mentioned are averaging 4.7 yards per carry or better on the ground. So in addition to be able to throw the ball under Graham Harrell, they're also uh, chunking off some pretty big plays running the ball as well. Now, Utah looked better overall against the Y than the men of Troy did. But the Cougars also shot themselves in the foot, committing three turnovers, whereas that's exactly what USC did against BYU. Um, Utah's defense, as we know, is good. Defensive end Bradley and I has three sacks. Linebacker Devin Lloyd is their leading tackler and also has two sacks. And the team had two pick sixes against BYU that we talked about. USC cannot allow that to happen. If they can play turnover free and and Slovis can uh, stay cool and composed as he looks to be. I mean, he didn't seem to be too rattled despite throwing those three interceptions. I think that USC's got a chance, especially if they're going to use their tall athletic receivers, Tyler Vaughns, Michael Pittman Jr. Um, each of those two guys have 21 or more catches, so keep feeding them the rock. They've got the height advantage over some of those athletic defenders from Utah. USC also has to finish drives and come away with tutties and not feelies, okay? meaning like field goals. Um, they, they're going to need to be efficient and protect the ball. USC, similar to what they were last year, is 106th in the turnover margin, where Utah is just 7th. So the Trojans will need to be near perfect, and like I said earlier, hang out of the ball. No picks, no fumbles. Slovis needs to be more Aaron Rodgers than he does Brett Favre. So the good thing for the Trojans is he doesn't seem to rattle easily. He appears poised to come back and come back home and play the next game and, and completely wash away BYU. 
Now, interesting stat. The home team has won the last six games in this series. Utah has never won in the Coliseum. The game is being played out in L.A. Um, so uh, I think this is going to come down to the USC's trenchmen, both on the offensive and defensive side. If they can get pressure on Tyler Huntley and force a turnover or two and perhaps a couple of sacks, I like the Trojans here. I'm going to call for the upset and say that Keaton Slovis gets it going again, uses his weapons effectively on offense to kind of um, one-up that Utah defense. I just don't think the Pac-12 has a college football playoff team, and that's going to become evident and official Friday night as the Utes stumble on the road. Give me USC 20-14 to 14 in this one, Bip. Okay. Well, my thoughts on this is that while Utah hasn't had quite the difficult schedule that US that USC has had so far, obviously they have the same opponent having played uh, BYU both. Um, Utah winning thirty to twelve, USC just losing last week. Uh, but outside of that, Huntley is averaging eleven point one yards per attempt and zero picks. Yeah. And as you mentioned, he hasn't been sacked yet this year. So incredibly efficient at quarterback. And Zach Moss looks uh, like he picked up. Uh, right where he left off last year before the injury. Yeah. The Utah defense has, has already um, registered 12 passes defended and picked the ball off three times, and they also rank eighth in the country in yards per game allowed. I think this defense is going to be tested at times by that USC passing attack because that group of receivers is going to test every defensive backfield that they face this right. year. But I think Slovis makes a few more freshman mistakes that lead to Utah scores. Um, not necessarily pick sixes, but I think Utah can take advantage of those turnovers, sure. um, lead to points on the board. And I think Utah wins this one comfortably. I'm going to call for U- Utah 31, USC 20, Chappie. Okay. And by the way, I forgot to mention, Utah is a four-point favorite as we uh, record this podcast right now. So um, the right. odds makers call it for a close game with Utah getting the edge there. Um, sure. All right, let's go to your game, uh, game one of uh, week four, Bip. Well, I'm going to go with uh, the biggest one this weekend, Chappie, and I'm going to go with the Notre Dame fighting Irish traveling to Athens, Georgia, and Georgia in this one is a 13 and a half point favorite as of right now. Um, So Notre Dame comes into this game as a major underdog, despite being a top 10 team. Part of that might be the performances of the Irish against top five teams within the past 15 to 20 years. Part of that might be because of how impressive Georgia's look this year. And part of that might be because of how the Irish offense has looked semi shaky so far this year. Hard to think that that's the case when the Irish averaged over 50 points per game so far, but their opponents, Louisville and New Mexico don't have the best of defenses by any means. And the Irish have, have relied upon uh, the big play instead of uh, some long efficient drives. And those long plays might come in short order against this fast and talented Bulldog defense that stifled their first two opponents, including what was thought to be a very talented Vanderbilt offense with playmakers abound. Offensively, I think the Irish will need to rely upon Ian Book performing at his best. He looked better against New Mexico than Louisville, but two of his long touchdown passes were those six-inch and around passes that are pseudo runs that probably won't work on Georgia. So um, close to 120, 130 of his passing yards and two touchdowns from last week were essentially end arounds. Um, now he's best when he's confident in the pocket and uses his timing and accuracy to his advantage. But, um, and because of that offensive line, um, or because of that, the offensive line is going to need to play better than they have the last two games. Cause they're going to need to give book the, the proper time needed. Additionally, that offensive line has been stuffed numerous times the past two weeks on short yardage situations, which doesn't invoke much confidence when heading into Athens this weekend. 
Um, now Notre Dame is going to be getting back their uh, tight end Cole Komet for this game, who's a major weapon in the middle of the field and in the red zone and had good surprise performances from receivers, Javon McKinley and Braden Lindsay last week. So the Irish had the playmakers to use in this contest, but this Georgia defense is deep. It's talented and Notre Dame will need to hit their spots in the first half to remain competitive as Georgia's defense is as well equipped to stay fresh in the second half as any team in the country. Um, I definitely give a an advantage with the athleticism and the depth to the Georgia defense in this one, but Notre Dame has the definite athletes and the playmakers to catch Georgia sleeping. Um, should they should they uh, pick their spots wisely in this one? Um, flipping the field for each, Georgia's got my favorite quarterback, Jake Fromm, uh, behind center, and he's playing behind the best offensive line in the country. The Bulldogs will run early, often, and potentially effectively. And that should be their game plan as Notre Dame's strength is at defensive end and uh, their ball hawking safety. So Mm -hmm. running the ball effectively should take both of those strengths away from the Irish. Then the Bulldogs can run effective play action pass to keep Khalid Kareem, Julian O'Quara, and Dalen Hayes from pinning their ears back and maybe get Aloe Gilman and Jalen Elliott to move up in the box and play out of position to where they could throw the ball right over top of them. Um, additionally, Notre Dame's weakness, uh, one of their weaknesses on defense is its linebackers as well as its depth at defensive tackle. So we could see that rear its head, especially in the third and fourth quarters. If that mean and nasty Georgia offensive line is able to wear down that Irish front seven as the game continues. Um, Deandre Swift is averaging 9.4 yards per carry and has almost cracked the 300 yard mark. Um, their backups, Brian Harrion, Zamir White, and Kenny McIntosh are also uh, very dangerous. And White and McIntosh are both averaging at least 7.4 yards per carry. So three backs averaging at least seven yards per carry. Very impressive going into this one. And at receiver, they have a couple, uh, a pair of very talented true freshman receivers in George Pickens and Dominic Blaylock, who've done a great job replacing all the pass catching talent that they lost from last year's team. Fromm hasn't thrown a pick this year, and he's averaging 10.7 yards per attempt while completing 75% of his passes. Um, Defensively, I think one of the X factors in this game could be the much-talked-about Kyle Hamilton, true freshman from Notre Dame. He's the type of athlete that Georgia normally gets, and he hails from Atlanta. So he's a tall, long uh, safety, runs about 6'4", covers a ton of ground, and has great instincts for a freshman. We'll see how often he's used as the Irish will most likely try to not use extra DBs to stop this uh, Georgia rushing attack. But Hamilton could force his way onto the field to help combat that uh, athletic group of receivers from Georgia. So as an Irish fan, this game worries me greatly. Notre Dame isn't far off from the elite programs in the country as what many around the country may think. But Clemson wasn't a good look last year, um, although Bama was embarrassed by them as well. Notre Dame narrowly lost to Georgia two years ago at home. Uh, Traveling to Athens isn't going to be easy. And had Ian Book looked a little sharper in the first two games, I'd feel more confident about Notre Dame. But as it stands, I think they keep this one close, certainly closer than that 13.5 point spread going into this game. I see Georgia pulling away in the second half due to that offensive line and overall depth across the board. Notre Dame scores late in this one to bring it within a touchdown, but I think Georgia wins comfortably. Notre Dame 21, Georgia 27. Mm, very close to my thoughts. And uh, isn't it a little bit of a uh, uh, contradiction for you? Your your boyhood dream, Jake Fromm, became a man <laughs> against Notre Dame 
uh, two years ago. I know. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah, because because when Jacob Eason went out, that was many Notre Dame fans' uh, trump card in that one of, well, they got this Fromm kid who's making his first ever collegiate start as a true freshman, right. and then he burst onto the scene. Yep, so <laughs> I know. <laughs> um, well, I, I agree with you. I think this is going to be a lot closer than that 13.5-point spread. So if you look on paper, these two teams match up statistically very similar. I mean, we're talking like within 10 ranking points of one another. And I'll give you an example. Mm-hmm. Um, Notre Dame uh, comes in as the uh, has the 10th highest yards per play. Georgia on defense is second in yards per play given up, so only eight spots away. Um, Notre Dame has um, the uh, fourth highest four points for. Georgia has the second highest points uh, allowed. So very, very evenly matched, a lot more so than people think. And, and I keep hearing national people talk about how Georgia's going to blow them out of the water. Notre Dame is a very lofty number seven. They haven't played anybody. It's Louisville and it's New Mexico. But again, you know, I thought last week that they wouldn't cover the 35, and they just spanked New Mexico at home. Ian yeah. Book looked really good. Uh, we saw a lot of that depth that we you know, figured would play in that game. They look pretty good. You mentioned McKinley. And how about Tommy Trumbull? I, I think you know Cole Komet coming back, yeah. but Trumbull at tight end is, I think, their most pleasant surprise um, on either side of the ball in terms of his production and what he's done in these first two games. Um, yeah, he's been a nice option down the field. For yeah, sure. absolutely. Especially when, you know, Komet went down and the concern was, well, you know, who are we going to have step up at tight end? Because um, mm-hmm. who is it? Is it Brock Wright? Is there is there other tight end, but more of a blocker than necessarily a right. receiving option? So, um, mm-hmm. so, you know, my notes here, Georgia looks good on both sides of the ball. Notre Dame looks good against the pass, but struggles against the one run. And uh, Georgia runs the wall, the ball pretty well, don't they, Bip? <laughs> just a, just little, a bit. little bit yeah so i think that's going to be the ultimate difference in the game uh you know right. it's it's, it's going to eventually great at the the notre dame defense you can put um you know whatever secondary men or linebackers you you want to in that box but if you crowd it too much you mentioned jake Fromm is going to be a high draft pick in the nfl he is one of my favorite quarterbacks to watch and he'd be definitely somebody i would put on my team in my top three um you know just They've got the the weapons, the skills, and playing between the hedges this early in the season. I think it, all those things just favor Georgia a little bit too much. So I like the dogs winning close, maybe pulling away at the end. I actually haven't won a 31-21, so a 10-point difference here. But again, I think that could be something to where uh, a long, sustained drive that takes up about eight minutes in the fourth quarter when the game's close, and then they go up by sure. 10, and Notre Dame just kind of runs out of gas at that point. So yeah, give me the dogs yep. 31-21 in this one. But Notre Dame... Uh, you know, beats the point spread. Sure. So what's game two for you? Game two for me, Chappie. I have the Michigan Wolverines traveling to Camp Randall to play the Wisconsin Badgers. And the Badgers come into this one as a three-point favorite. So Wisconsin is perhaps the the team that has mo- the most steam of any team in the country going into this oh, yeah. one. Their defense is allowed only 107 0.5 yards per game, which is almost half the uh, the amount of the second place team TCU, who's allowed 209.5. Oh yeah, they also haven't allowed a single point yes yet this year. Right. Now they've played against South Florida and Central Michigan, but those two schools have averaged nearly 37 points per game in their other four uh, games that they've played. Mm-hmm. So Wisconsin ranks first in the country in uh, defensive third down conversion percentage. They've tied for first in the country in average time of possession 
Um, they rank 18th in the country with 517 yards per game. Um, and they come in with, with uh, a lot of momentum and a lot of steam. Michigan, on the other hand, is coming into this one, having kind of stubbed their toe in both of their uh, two games that they played this year. They um, they actually rank 79th in the country with 397 yards per game uh, offensively. And um, additionally, the Badgers have only committed five penalties in their first two games in contrast to Michigan, who's committed 17 in the first two games. So Michigan's going to need to greatly improve their defense uh, as well as their discipline and the ability to hang on to the ball uh, if they're going to have uh, if they're going to keep this game close. Um, so the Michigan offense has looked to me uh, so far like much of the same in the Harbaugh era so far. New offensive coordinator, same Michigan offense running the ball while hoping that your, your superior athletes at wide receiver can make a play. The receivers have made some big plays this year, and Zach Charbonnet has been an, uh, an impressive freshman running back, but Michigan hasn't been a fluid offense as of yet, and Charbonnet is averaging 4.6 yards per carry, which is pretty good, but hasn't really taken over any game necessarily. He's kind of one of those guys that um, gains more steam towards the end as he gets more and more carries. Uh, and as I mentioned, turnovers and penalties have led to stalled drives or ended drives too often for the Wolverines. Um Patterson's shown glimpses that made him uh, what was such a highly touted recruit and transfer, but his biggest flaw has been his biggest downfall this year again, which is poor decision-making and turnovers as he can't seem to hang on to the ball. Wisconsin's forced four fumbles so far this year, and they've sacked the quarterback five times this far. So how often they may or may not get in the backfield in this contest could go a long way towards determining the victor. Linebackers Chris Orr and Jack Sanborn have played well and could be busy in this game. Uh, if the past couple of games are any indication as to how often Michigan will run the ball. If Michigan's receivers can find some space and or get behind that Wisconsin secondary, they can find success through the air as any one of their top three can take it to the house on any given touch. Um, Michigan's defense has not really looked as aggressive and intimidating as years past. Um, Aiden Hutchinson and Jordan Glasgow have been pretty productive and looked good, but Quiddy Pay and Josh Uche have been, uh, for the most part, absent from many of the big plays this year. Sure tackler um, Kalik Hudson will play a big role in keeping Jonathan Taylor at bay uh, should he eventually and inevitably break into the second level. The Michigan secondary limited Middle Tennessee State to only 6.8 yards per attempt passing, which I think will be around where Wisconsin's going to live in this game. But they did allow a 59-yard touchdown pass in that game as well. And Quentin Cephas, or I'm sorry, Quintez Cephas is coming off a game in which he scored touchdowns of 36 and 46 against Central Michigan. So Michigan's going to need to make sure that they don't overcommit and let Cephas get behind that defense. But I like the Michigan secondary uh, versus the Wisconsin group of receivers in this one and think that that's something that the Wolverines can exploit. Um, For Wisconsin, obviously it's going to be all about running the ball. Jonathan Taylor's looked just as good as he has his first couple seasons in this one. Um, And that offensive line for Wisconsin doesn't look like it's missed much of a beat despite losing so much talent from last year. At the beginning of the season, I thought Wisconsin could potentially exceed expectations of – a lot of people had them maybe third or fourth in the Big Ten West, but I didn't think they'd look this right. good. And I kind of thought Michigan would underperform their lofty hype, but I thought that they'd look better in their first two games than they have so far. Um, so going into this game, I feel even more confident of each of those two factors. That said, Army is a tough place to or a tough team to play. 
people forget that they were a fringe top 25 team coming into the year, but then they struggled against Rice. And they're a well-disciplined team who's tough to beat when you commit penalties and turnovers. I think the extra week does Michigan some good, and I think they keep this one close like the spread suggests. But I think Wisconsin enters the fourth quarter with the lead. Michigan falls short with their last possession as Wisconsin starts off. Big Ten play with a bang. I like the Badgers in this one, 34-30 over Michigan, Chappie. Okay. Uh, Brace yourself. Oh, boy. So, yeah. Um, Well, this is the fourth meeting between Harbaugh and Christ. Both teams have been ranked each time that they've played, with the home team getting the W each time. So, sounds like it's going to be setting up for a Wisconsin win. They're favored by three points. They're ranked 13th. Michigan's ranked 11th. Now, for Wisconsin, they've been very efficient. Jack Cohn has been very efficient. Jonathan Taylor has been hard to stop. Wisconsin on paper looks like a much, much better team than Michigan. I have on my stat sheet here nine statistics that I compare each of our teams that we break down. Wisconsin has Michigan in an overwhelmingly, um, you know, an overwhelming win in eight of the nine categories. And in two of the categories, they are 50 spots or better than Michigan is. Um, So again, they look better on paper, but have they really been tested yet? That's a great stat that you throw out about right. how they haven't given up a point against teams that are averaging 35 points a game. Uh, but Wisconsin notoriously looks great in non-conference, and then they come back to earth when they open up Big Ten play. Case in point, 2014, mm-hmm. they demolish Western Illinois, Bowling Green, and USF, and then they lose to Northwestern, a team they shouldn't have lost to. 2016, um, they, they beat LSU, Akron, Georgia State, and Michigan State, and then they lose at Michigan. 20, uh, 2015, I'm sorry, I skipped over that. Um, they lose to Alabama, which anybody would. They beat Miami of Ohio, Troy and Hawaii, and then they fall to earth against Iowa, who's unranked. Um, last year, they beat Western Kentucky, they beat New Mexico, and then unranked BYU comes in when Wisconsin was ranked sixth, and they drop the ball. So um, this has been a theme for Wisconsin in recent history. Now, I think Michigan is a much better team than what they've shown so far and could be waiting for this game to erupt. And I think we very well could see the switch from Patterson to Dylan McCaffrey in this game. McCaffrey, to me, shows that he has ice in his veins and is a very smart player. Now, we know Michigan can Mm -hmm. play defense, so it will come down to their offense. Wisconsin has played good defense so far against lesser opponents, but I still don't know about that 3-4 defense going against a good offensive mind like Jim Harbaugh. Yes, I said it. And they're going down, to, and they're they're down to their starting. Uh, Wisconsin's down their starting free safety and their starting nose tackle, and a couple of offensive receivers are a little bit nicked as well. But this one scares me, and I would not, I would stay away from it if I was, uh, you know, putting money on any games. And as much as I right. love picking against Michigan, I hate picking against Michigan at the same time. Does that make any sense? Um, oh yeah. So yep, I'm always nervous to bet against them, but I love doing. So. I know. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I'll be the first one to gloat when, when they don't come out on top, but I'm going to say, right, give right. me my big 10 champs close and then come back fashion. <laughs> Michigan 23, 21. So give me oh, the Wolverines boy. to, uh, to take it. <laughs> um, all right, well, let's get that bad taste out of your mouth and go you. with your number two game. Yes. Jeffy. Okay. Well, let's go down to sec country and go down to, our former home state, uh, the, the, the lone star t- state of Texas. So number eight, Auburn, traveling to number 17, Texas A&M, where the Aggies, who are ranked um, nine spots below the Tigers, are actually favored in this game by four points. Um, mm-hmm. So Auburn, they had three running backs with over 100 yards, 467 total last week against Kent State. 
and led by Jart- 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 I'm sorry, Jatarvius Whitlow and come in with the 10th best rushing offense in the country. True freshman quarterback Bo Nix has been okay, but not spectacular. He's only completing 52% of his passes for 544 yards. He's got a 4-2 to two touchdown to interception ratio, which is not outstanding, and he's been sacked three times. Now he's going against a hostile defense in a loud atmosphere and increasingly heightened expectations. So expect to see continued use of backup Joey Gatewood, who's really their goal line and their uh, red zone quarterback in the backfield, and mix up what Bo Nix can bring and what the bigger Gatewood can do against a bigger defensive unit that, than they've seen all year. Now, a key here will be on the offensive line for Auburn. They're going to be without offensive tackle Bailey Sharp, who's done for six weeks with a lower body injury, and they may be without All-American candidate Prince Wanago. Um, so if they have to play with two newer tackles against that Aggie front under uh, very famed defensive coordinator Mike Elko, that could be a bit of a problem for the Auburn Tigers. A&M themselves have a very good defense. They're seventh against the run, 13th against the pass, and defensive backs Roni Elam and Miles Jones each have two interceptions in this young season in just two games played so far. Now, a and is going to be without their top rusher, Jayshon Corbin, but Isaiah Spiller has shown some spurts of good. He's averaging 8.8 yards per carry, and even if you take away his 85-yard touchdown run, that still leaves him with a six-yard per carry average, so it's not necessarily um, an inflated stat. Uh, but he's he likely won't see similar numbers against this defense, which features Marlon Davidson, Tyrone Truesdale, and Big Cat Bryant on that defensive front. I haven't seen the it from Kellen Mond that we were expecting to see going into the season. Granted, he's completed 65% of his passes, but he's got a 5-3 to three touchdown to interception ratio, and he's going against one of the better defenses and one of the better defensive fronts in the country. So if he's going to have it, he'll certainly have it, have to earn it this weekend. Now, when you have two run offenses going against really good rush defenses, obviously it's going to come down to quarterback playing intangibles. The Aggies have the more experienced quarterback in Mond and slightly better and more physical receivers in Jamin Osbin, Kendrick Rogers, and Cameron Buckley. Auburn's defensive backs are good, but uh, unfortunately for them, they're slightly better against the run than they are defending the pass, and I think this is going to come down to Kellen Mond airing it out um, and Bo Nix having to air it out on the offensive side for Auburn. Defensive battles usually come down to special teams, and Auburn has not been good in the punt game, where AM has been very good and has the reigning Ray Guy winner, Braden Mann, coming back from last year. Both kickers on each team are special, so that's a push. Now, interesting stat, Auburn is 3-0 in college stations since AM joined uh, the SEC, but Auburn also won last year after the road team had won six straight. So I think the Aggies buck the trend this year, too, and take the game close I think the Aggies gig them 24-20 um, in College Station. So that makes it a push. AM's favored by four points, and I see them winning by four. So I'm going to call this game to be a push. Again, I would kind of stay away from that line as well. Ben. Yeah. Okay. Well, here's a stat for you, Chappie. Since the first quarter of the Oregon game, this Auburn defense has allowed only 29 points in 11 quarters, or under three points per quarter. Against Clemson, Texas A&M was really only able to move the ball through the air, but didn't connect on many big plays. I see that happening here as well, and I see this Auburn defense shutting down Spiller and forcing Kellerman to beat them with his arm. I still don't feel that confident about Bo Nix, but I think this Auburn running game should be able to carve out enough on the ground and have the the defense to to do what they do best, which is wearing an opponent uh, an opponent down. And once they get into that second half. Um, controlling that time of possession as they continue to grind this one out. 
I think this is a low scoring affair with the first team to 20 coming out on top. But give me Auburn in this one, 24, Texas A&M 17. Yeah, and I was literally going back and forth. This morning, I had Auburn written down, and I went back this afternoon, <laughs> and I literally changed it. And I thought about changing it back to Auburn, so I'm, I'm staying mm-hmm. far away from this one. But it is going to be an entertaining game. So quickly, right. what's game number three for you, Bip, on your slate? Well, I'm going to go with the Oklahoma State Cowboys traveling to Austin to take on the Texas Longhorns, who Texas is a seven-point favorite going into this one. And this is maybe the most intriguing matchup to me yep. of the week. Texas comes in at 2-1, and one, having lost that close game against LSU, while Oklahoma State comes in 3-0, and oh, having not played great competition but looking pretty good in doing so. Oklahoma State ranks 12th in the country in yards per game, uh, 9th in the country in rushing yards per game. So a little bit of a different take from the typical Mike Gundy uh, offenses that we know of. Um, And that's mainly because of two guys in particular, one being uh, redshirt freshman Spencer Sanders at quarterback. um, And he's been able to do so. Uh, through the air pretty decently, but uh, more so on the ground, adding 219 yards and a touchdown. Uh, but he's also completing 67.2% of his passes with seven touchdowns. And the other guy that uh, is allowing this Oklahoma State to run the ball so effectively is Chuba Hubbard, who has been on fire yeah. and leads the NCAA in rushing by 66 yards. And he's already got 200 or two 200 yard rushing games. The other guy that's been propelling this offense is. Our boy, Chappie, Tylon Smoochie Wallace, yes, who's dominated, as he also leads the NCAA, but in receiving yards with 390. Oh, and he's also got six touchdowns through the air as well. Oh, and they're both also 80... on my fantasy team, too. Just wanted to throw that out there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Aiding these offensive weapons are the big guys up front who've only allowed two sacks and 13 tackles for loss in their three games so far this year. So they've done a good job making sure that opposing defenses don't get in the backfield. And this is troubling news for the Longhorns as they rank 91st in the country with only 5.3 tackles for loss per game. Yeah. Um, this Texas defense's uh, strength should be their secondary, but it was picked apart by that very talented LSU group of receivers and Joe Burrow. And they also allowed 300 yards to Louisiana Tech. So I think that they could rattle Sanders if they can limit uh, Wallace's production because I like the Texas defensive backs over the rest of the Cowboy wide receivers. But if you're, if you force Mike Gundy to pass the ball, you may be careful what you wish for in that one. Um, The, the Texas offensive line going to that side of the ball for the Longhorns, they've struggled as shown by a subpar rushing output that ranks 82nd in, in uh, sacks allowed. And they've also done a good, not great job rushing the ball so far this year, but they should get Zach Shackle, uh, Shackleford back for this one, which will help them. Mm-hmm. Uh, where they live and die is in the passing game so far this year, as they have a very deep and talented group of receivers. Devin Duvernay could have been the MVP of that LSU game had Texas come away with the victory. Brennan Eagles is averaging over 22 yards per catch. Jake Smith has had three touchdown grabs himself, and that doesn't even mention Colin Johnson, who's been bothered with a hamstring injury this year. So, talented and deep group of receivers for Texas. Um, Oklahoma State's defense has a couple of major disruptors so far this year in the second and third levels. Malcolm Rodriguez leads the team with 31 tackles so far this year at safety. And Amen, I, and I'm going to butcher this one, but Agbong Bamiga is <laughs> second good. on the team with uh, 25 tackles, six tackles for loss, three and a half sacks. Yeah. Um, so I think that this is going to be a very entertaining one. Texas went toe-to-toe with LSU and fell short. 
Texas was burned time and time again in that one by the Tigers through the air, but Oklahoma State doesn't have those kinds of weapons in the passing game outside of Wallace. Where I see Texas's potential uh, being burned in this one is on the ground with that dynamic duo of Spencer Sanders and Chuba Hubbard. I haven't been overly impressed with the Texas defense, no. and I'm equally unimpressed by their running game. I think in the fourth quarter, the Cowboys running attack takes over and their passing game gives them just enough big plays when they need to pull them off. And I think that they pull the upset off in this one. I like the Cowboys 41-38, Chappie. Okay. Um, I agree that Texas scores 38. Um, so Texas can score points, and Sam Ellinger is a fantastic quarterback. He's still in the Heisman race. And if you don't believe me, 73% completion percentage, 956 yards, 11-0 to touchdown-to-interception ratio. That is yeah. wowing. But he's been sacked six times. So, yeah, getting Shackelford back if he comes back in this game is going to be a big help. You mentioned the, the the volatile stats from that OSU offense. And anytime you've got a Mike Gundy-led offense, it uh, doesn't matter who you plug in there, they're going to light it up. And, yeah, it is nice to see Chuba and Smoochie light it up offensively and, and, and get me some points. Um, so for Texas, 16 different guys have caught a pass. Seven have caught five or more passes. Problem is they need to be able to run the ball better. They're very thin at running back, and Keontae Ingram is still not 100%. The Horns have some guys a little bit banged up, and uh, they, like you mentioned, they have not been playing very good defense this year, so that worries me. Now, in this series, UT has lost four straight to OSU and seven of the last nine. That doesn't look good. I like the Pokes to go into Austin and play the Horns close. I just don't know if I would give them the edge over Ellinger at home before a bye when, they, when the Longhorns can afford to pull out all the stops for getting ready for Oklahoma in three weeks. I think this is one of the best games of the day. It's another classic, but give me the horns 38-34 bit. Very good, Chappie. And so take us into your last game that you have coming into this week. Well, and and this is kind of um, you know, now it's it's kind of, you know, spin the roulette wheel, but I'm gonna go with number 23 Cal, who comes in three and zero, um, and they beat a highly ranked Washington team at Ole Miss and Ole Miss is favored by two and a half points. So we've got two pretty good defenses going against average offenses. And these coaches have some familiarity as Justin Wilcox, Cal's head coach um, was coaching against Mike McIntyre when he was at Colorado and Rich Rodriguez, when he was at Arizona, um, they coached against one another in the pac 12. Cal has won their first three games by only a total of 21 points against ranked UW after a long lightning delay and nobody was in the stands FCS level UC Davis and Conference USA's North Texas. Now, Cal's quarterback, Chase Gabbers, um, is only completing 52% of his passes for a three to one touchdown interception ratio. So they don't put the ball in the air too much. And he's been sacked nine times. Nine times? Nine, nine times. times. That's right. <laughs> now, the run game's been solid, and they've done a pretty good job of grinding down their opposition with Christopher. Don't call me Chris because I don't know Rihanna Brown. And Marcel, I'm feeling kind of dancey, each averaging over five yards per carry on 23 carries or more through three games. The passing game can be explosive at times as five pass catchers average over 15 yards per reception. But like I said, it's feast or famine with gobbers. Um <laughs> Now their defense is led by linebackers Evan Weaver, Kwani Dang, and Cameron Good, and they're complemented by their DBs. Yes, I'm putting their linebackers ahead of their secondary, even though a lot of people will point out that it's one of the best secondaries in the country. Um, defensive backs like Davis, Hawkins, Bynum, and Hicks um, are made better because their linebackers are so active that they pressure and pester the offensive enough to make mistakes downfield. And when they do peel back and allow the quarterback to, to work and they drop eight, those opposing quarterbacks have nowhere to go with it, and so that defense looks even better. 
Now, Ole Miss comes in ninth in the NCAA in tackles for loss and 24th in scoring defense. So this is no slouch of a defense under Mike McIntyre. They're without talented middle linebacker Mohamed Sinogo, but they still played well against a uh, seemingly uh, good offensive Arkansas team. And Ole Miss has four players with multiple passes defended this year. Ryder Anderson and Charles Wiley on the defensive line have also started to heat up. Each of them have a couple of sacks in the last two weeks. And on uh, that front, they're getting uh, deeper and more talented. And we talked about how the Bears' offensive line has struggled keeping Garbers upright. Again, nine sacks so far this year. Uh, the Ole Miss offense is led by Rich Rod, who always seems to find a way to crack a good defense. And I like, to, I like that to happen here. They've gotten better each week Ole Miss has, scoring 15, 31, and then 40 points in succession. Quarterback Matty Corral, uh, who's one of my favorite players to watch play the game, and that run game should be the difference. Ole Miss can run, and don't, they don't have to go against that 14th best Cal defense against the pass. They've got three backs, Scotty Phillips, Jerrion Ely, and Snoop Connor, who have the ability to hurt you on the ground. But they need to avoid the turnovers because Cal is really good at creating them. So again, Corral, their quarterback, needs to be their leader and not a hero. He's completing 63% of his passes for a 4-1 to touchdown interception ratio, but he himself has been sacked seven times, so he needs to get rid of the ball and, and learn to throw it away and not try and force anything and certainly not lose yardage in a sack, which puts you in a um, seemingly obvious passing down situation. Ole Miss is better when they can run the ball in that rich red offense. Um, I think Ole Miss should be able to crack that Cal D, but it will be made so much easier if they can utilize their receivers more than just going to Elijah Moore, who's had to do almost everything through the air this year. And they've got the athletes and they've got that reputation for being a good wide receiver school. So let's see it this weekend. Here's the kicker, though. Cal travels across the country, and this is a noon Eastern start for the uh, for the Bears. I think that's going to catch up to them a little bit. I think that the Ole Miss team and the crowd is going to be much more into it. It's going to take Cal maybe a half to get their bearings. And I know that that sounds like an excuse, but you see it a lot with these Pac-12 teams coming across the country. So um, Ole Miss's only loss so far this year was five points to a pretty good Memphis team. And their offense and defenses are looking better each week. So, BIP, the Rebels are 8 and 2 in non conference play under Matt Luke. One loss was that close one to Memphis this year. Do you know who the other loss was against in non conference in the last three years? No. Okay. It's Cal. So, Cal in 2017 ah. by nine points out in Berkeley. But this one's in 2019. This Rebels team is better than that one. And it's out in the Grove in uh, Oxford, Mississippi. So I'm going to take the Rebs to improve to 3-1, and one, not Cal out of the rankings. Give me Ole Miss 30-16 to 16 in this one. Yeah, Chappie, Cal falls into that how the sausage is made football category. You don't know <laughs> how they keep ripping off wins with such a bad offense, but you don't need to know how it happens. Just enjoy the end result. Right. So Ole Miss comes into this with an offense that continues to improve, but they haven't set the world on fire either considering their opponents. I'm nervous of that cross-country trip made by Cal that you mentioned. And quite honestly, I don't know why athletic directors agree to a West Coast to East Coast noon game right. ever. But that's beside the point at, at the moment. Um, but Ole Miss doesn't do much to wow me on offense like the Cal defense continues to wow me um, on that side of the ball. I think the secondary takes away the thing that Ole Miss um, does best, uh, which is um, – uh, contrary to what to what you said is is throw the ball through the air and i think evan weaver continues to be a monster in the middle of the field and adds to his already 40 tackle tally so far this year 
Give me Cal on this one, 1310. Hmm. And maybe you want to DVR this one to fast forward it, unless you're a fan of uh, a big fan of defense, because this one could be a snooze fest. It could be. I, so, I'm going to bank on Rich Rod um, getting back to form and giving us something to to enjoy from an offensive standpoint and, and send Cal back to Berkeley, going back to the drawing board and, and knowing that they still have a shot at doing some good things in the Pac-12 this year, Bip. Right. Um, real quick, because, you know, we, we like to cover your Notre Dame team and my Northwestern team. Michigan State travels to Evanston to play Northwestern, and Michigan State's a nine-point favorite. Now, conventional wisdom might tell you to take the Spartans here, but MSU has been favored by six, two, and ten points the last three meetings, and NU has won by 14, eight, and 11 points in those meetings. Um, and they won each of those games by taking to the air and throwing the football because Michigan State teams are really good at stopping the run. Duh. NU is going to need to double-team <laughs> Kenny Willickis, keep a super back in to block against Jacob Panashuk, and hope that Joe Bocci maybe gets the flu. Oh, and they're going to need Hunter Johnson to really become the human form of the paper giant he's been billed as the last year and a half. And it's not really fair to the kid, Hunter Johnson, but nonetheless, this is where he's at, and he's going to need to prove himself in this game because it's Big Ten play now. And Coach Pat Fitzgerald will tell you the same thing. I think they've been saving some of their juice Northwestern has for this game because it's the Big Ten opener. And the past three years, Fitzgerald is starting to have D'Antonio's number. Now, this is a real interesting game to watch D'Antonio, especially. There were some saying that he just looked so dejected after the Arizona State frustration and maybe like he was showing signs of he's lost his, lu- he's lost his lust for the game after last week's debacle. Does he come back in this game and we see the little giant slash mousetrap trick plays and the, um, you know, go for the throat type of coach that D'Antonio is and energize his team? Or do we see him stick to his script and hope for execution that leads to a sound victory? Um, I see the Wildcats with more of the upside right now than the Spartans and playing at home with some unusual energy in their run game. Did you know, Bip, that Northwestern's rush offense is actually ranked higher than their rush defense, which I can't remember the last time that that's happened. Wow. Um, I think that gives the Cats the edge here. They get Isaiah Bowser back. Drake Anderson had a really impressive game uh, last yeah. week. So I'm seeing purple while Sparty still sees red. Give me NU 20 to 14, uh, 20 to 14 winning this one and starting off Big Ten, Big Ten play with a, a W. I'm going to, I'm going to oppose you. Unfortunately, Chappie, I think uh, Michigan state coming off of uh, such a, a hard fought loss. um, I don't expect them to be any better offensively, especially against a potentially uh, more talented defense that Northwestern has compared to Arizona state. Um, But I think that defense is just too much. And that Northwestern offense has not shown to be um, very effective at all, especially against the better teams that they've played so far this year. I like Sparty in this one, 16-13, but again, maybe best to watch this one on a DVR if you can fast forward some of the uh, back-and-forth punts that are inevitable uh, to happen between these two. Yep, and I would definitely take the under, and I will be covering that game in the press box in Ryan Field, and thankfully, because I saw that rain is in the forecast and they're getting thunderstorms the next day, so if those storms pass through sooner... Um, we could see a sloppy condition, which is really going to make points at a premium in that one, Bip. So, um, very nice. Let's take a look at our our Chappies Chasers, and then we'll get to your Bips trips for the week. So, our upset sure. specials. Um, I like Air Force getting eight and a half points at Boise State. 
Air Force is actually statistically better than Boise State in many categories. Um, Air Force is one of those sneaky teams. They went out to Boulder and beat Colorado, an undefeated Colorado team last week. Mm -hmm. Um, So give me Air Force to cover the eight and a half points. And I wouldn't be surprised if they win outright. The game, being that the game's played out on the Smurf turf, I like Boise to, to get the W, but I certainly like Air Force to play it a lot closer than eight and a half. Um, I'm also going to call for a MAC upset. So some MAC and love here. Western Michigan getting six points. I think they go to the Carrier Dome and they beat a down Syracuse team. And I think that this is really going to um, cause people to say that Dino Babers might be back on that hot seat. I just have not gotten a lot of confidence in Syracuse in watching them. I know that they lost to a very good Clemson team last week, and I know that they lost to a highly offensive Maryland team the week before, but they beat Liberty 22 to nothing um, on the road in week one, and I haven't been convinced that Liberty, I mean, Liberty's good, but it's Liberty, and and this is a Syracuse team that some were saying could challenge Clemson for the ACC Atlantic, where some were saying that they're a shoe-in to win nine games. I call them to win nine games. I think that Western gets them at the right time. It's a noon start, and I think that uh, more people are going to be at the bars in Syracuse before they get to the Carrier Dome, and by the time they get there, Western's going to have uh, have them beat. So that's my upset special. And then I'm going to take Kansas getting five points to win and or cover the points and win against West Virginia at home. Uh, and not a huge upset because I'm, I'm frankly surprised that West Virginia is a five-point favorite, but I think the Jayhawks get to three and one with this win and good for less miles in this one. So Air Force covering the points against Boise State, Western beating Syracuse outright, and Kansas beating West Virginia outright. Bip. Okay. So uh, last week, both of us, Chappie, called for Florida State to beat Virginia, and it looked good for Never the most again. part, but like you said, <laughs> Florida State can't play a second half. Mm-hmm. Um I also uh, called for Minnesota and and Michigan State to be a lot closer to their opponents. Minnesota damn near lost that game, and we saw what happened at the end of the Michigan State game. So hoping to keep some of that good momentum going into this one. I already mentioned that I think that Oklahoma State's going to knock off Texas in an upset there. But uh, my highlighted game for this week is going to be Kentucky's traveling to Mississippi State. Mississippi State is favored by seven and a half points in this one. I don't get it. I'm not overly impressed with the Bulldogs, and their defense hasn't been near what it was last year. Outside of Brian Cole, they haven't had anyone who's very disruptive. I like Chauncey Rivers and Errol Thompson, but they haven't gotten into the opponent's backfield often enough this year. What bodes well for the Bulldogs in this one is that they've been able to force 11 turnovers, and Kentucky is 118th in the country with seven turnovers lost so far this year. But I'm just not overly impressed with Tommy Stevens. Um, Colin Hills looked really good rushing the ball for Mississippi State, um, and Osiris Mitchell has been a good receiving option. Um, but I, I like the the... I, I like how Kentucky looked against Florida last week. Yeah. I think they're going to come into this one motivated, knowing that they, that they let that game slip through their fingers. Both teams struggle to throw the ball, both excel in running the ball, with both defenses having dropped off from last year's performances. I think Smoke and Rose from Kentucky will be used even more in this game than they were against Florida to try and keep Sawyer Smith from trying to have to do too much as he threw three picks last week against the Gators, but he does have a relatively live arm if called upon. If Kentucky can win the turnover battle in this one, I think they win this one in Starkville, and the hot seat starts to warm up for Joe Moorhead slightly as Mississippi State then has to play Auburn, LSU, and Texas A&M in three of the next four weeks. And starting off two and four, doesn't matter who you are in the SEC, that's not going to have fans happy. I like the Wildcats in this one, 24 
uh, or I'm sorry, 27, 23 over Mississippi state. Yeah. I like that. And and for people who didn't watch the Kentucky game, they were up 21, seven late in the third quarter. So Florida yeah. won 29, 28 or 29, 21. And that was because they had, um, uh, as they were trying to run out the clock, they ran a jet sweep that they took to the house. Yeah, that so went really 60 like some yards. Exactly. Yeah. So for all intents and purposes, Kentucky really only lost that game by like a point. Um, and Florida right. had to come back and do it with a backup quarterback. So yeah, this is a better Kentucky team than um, some people might look at. And I think that still, like we called in the preseason, this Mississippi State team, which I saw as ranked as high as 13th in the preseason, is vastly mm-hmm. overrated. So the fact oh, that they're sure. a seven-point favorite against a pretty good Kentucky team, that that baffles me. So I like that pick. Mm-hmm. A um, couple other games that I like to be closer than what their spread indicates. I like uh, Nebraska's getting 10 and a half points, traveling to Champaign I to play Illinois. There, yeah. I, I like Illinois to keep this one close against a Nebraska team that's underperformed so far this year. Yeah. And then Missouri's getting nine and a half, uh, or I'm sorry, giving nine and a half, um, traveling to South Carolina. Yeah. I like South Carolina. I liked what I saw from Ryan Helinski against Alabama last yeah. week. I think that the game Hawks or the, the game Cox are, are, um, almost as talented as Missouri playing at home. I have no idea why Missouri's giving nine and a half in this game. Right. So I like both of these, uh, home underdogs to keep the spread much closer than the 10 and a half and nine and a half respectively. Right. Um, that Illinois and South Carolina are, are facing heading into this weekend. Kelly Bryant's a good quarterback, but why does every reporter, bow down to this guy i mean is it that they feel bad for him is it that i mean (laughs) it's it's like um every sports writer has a deep debt to kelly bryant it's like okay he's good but yeah i think that goes into missouri um giving or laying nine points to a pretty good south carolina team that went uh you know, a lot closer against a good Alabama team last week than than most people thought, especially with a true freshman quarterback like Halinski. So, um, yeah, I know. I I think Kelly Bryant's talented in his own right, but I don't think that he is, you know, head and shoulders anything spectacular. Right. Um. I mean, the fact that he couldn't lead his team to a victory over Wyoming yeah. should tell you everything you need to know about. He can put up some stats, but he's not going to be the the do all end all in the SEC at quarterback. Right, because I, if they have their backup quarterback in there and not Kelly Bryant, um, I think this is a much different outlook on, on the Missouri football team. So, right. So that's what we have to that's what you have to look forward to in week number four of the college football season. Don't look now, but the season is already a quarter of the way gone. Please don't blink. Please join Bip and I next week as we rehash this exciting week four and revisit what hopes to be accurate predictions from this podcast. Remember, if you want to be more informed than the other guys, continue to follow us here on a bowl full of chips. I am at champion underscore lit on Twitter, and he is at BFC Bip. So check us out, get our picks, thoughts, and humor. Week four is gone. The foregone conclusions are starting to unfold, but truth be told, the season ain't that old. So continue to listen to our thoughts, some mainstream, some bold, And as the weather outside turns cold, do as you're told and get your bowl full of chips and give us no reason to scold. I am Chappie. And I am Bip. And we thank you for your devotion. Stay classy, keep smiling, and continue to enjoy season 150 because it's more than a hobby, it's heavenly. See you, everybody. Bye, bye, bye.